Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and on this week's show we find out why Labor MP Joel Fitzgibbon is sticking it to his party on climate change and other matters. He's suggesting Labor is now under its new Anthony Albanese form, like its old Bill Shorten form, is unelectable. I want to know why. And then I talked to the MD of Johnson & Johnson Medical in Australia and New Zealand, Susan Martin, on what it's been like to run an organisation like this during the coronavirus. So without any further ado, let's catch up with the seemingly very cranky Joel Fitzgibbon. Welcome to the program, Joel. Great to be with you, Peter. Now, it's not something that you usually do. Uh, historically, you've been a... a, a I, I would have thought a fairly um, consistent support of the party, but at the moment um, you really are giving it to your party on the subject of climate change. Why are you doing that? Not just on climate change, Peter. I want my party, the party to be talking just as much about the issues that are so important on a daily basis to those who are open to voting for a Labor government. Climate change is important, very important, and I believe in meaningful action on climate change. But we can't become the party of climate change. We need to be going back to our roots and re-establishing our, ourselves as the party of people and, in particular, the party of working people. You, know, you are the member for Hunter, and it is a traditional Labor seat. Is this the feedback you're getting from the people who have either voted for you um, or have stopped voting for you? Of course it is, Peter, and the proof is in the numbers that came out of the last federal election result. I, I suffered a, a huge protest vote. It, the, the National Party, uh, which runs against me and Hunter, did not benefit from it. In fact, the National Party vote went backwards. They po they parked their protest vote uh, with One Nation and I believe at that stage at least uh, it was their intention to do that once and once only uh, as long as the Labor Party received loud and clear uh, their message. Uh, and their message is that while climate change might be important, uh, par party policy has to be inclusive. Miners in particular know that there is a transition going on, particularly in the electricity generation sector. But the Labor Party has a history when, when things are changing in our economy of first and foremost being inclusive and making sure no one is left behind. And that's not the message they were receiving prior to the election. And I was pretty determined post-election to make sure we get that message right and make it loud and clear. Many years ago, you would remember um, when people like Rod Cavalier was in the Labor Party in New South Wales, they um, often referred to a, a group of Labor politicians as Chardonnay socialists. Um, we don't tend to use that word anymore. Um, uh, but the, the bottom line is, do you think that there is a, <clears throat> a core in your party that has lost touch with the majority of Australians in pursuing what they think are really important ideals, but by doing that, they've effectively made themselves a minority interest group rather than a majority interest group. 
Well, I've, I made the point very publicly on a number of occasions that occasions the Labor Party now has two political support bases. Uh, one is the traditional, you know, typically blue collar base, now more high vis base, um, which which we which was formed out of the shearing sheds of Queensland and on the wharves of Balmain. And on the other side of the equation, we have this more recently arrived progressive base, uh, more likely but not exclusively to be found uh, in the inner, inner, inner parts of our capital cities. And, and what has happened there, of course, is that if you go to a place like Surrey Hills in Sydney, it was very much a working class area at the, at the time of Federation. But as we all know, that's dramatically changed. We now have this very... Uh, dem- a progressive demographic, and it is therefore necessary for local members to represent their local communities, as I I seek to do. So you'd expect members from that part of the world to be quite progressive in their policy approach and their public pronouncements. But um, too many of those people have managed to, you know, get themselves into a party of inf- a, a, a position of influence where that progressive language, that progressive thinking has, has come to dominate uh, the Labor Party. And, of course, that would be fine. That will be fine for some. But, of course, that is sending our traditional base running as they come to the conclusion that we're more focused uh, on the inner city and the, the issues which are important to people there, climate change being the obvious, uh, and have lost interest. Uh, in the issues that are important to people living you know, in the regions, for example, the Hunter Valley, central Queensland and the like. Joel, um, Bob Hawke, when he was Prime Minister, was able to marry the the interest of the, the trade union movement and business and uh, it was a part of his success that he was able to do that. Do you think in recent times the leadership of the party hasn't been, hasn't been able to, to marry those two interests that you're talking about, traditional Labor voters, if you like, working class voters and the, the more progressive, uh, left-inclined, climate-changed, um, um, interested uh, members of the Labor Party? You are spot on, Swift. It's not a new problem for the Labor Party, and Hawke and Keating uh, managed to, to, to juggle the two political support bases quite well, and in doing so, they, they managed to win not just one election, but four more elections following that. Uh, Kevin Rudd did it more recently. Mm. Kevin Rudd went to the 2007 election with a quite progressive environmental policy, for example, but he balanced that with a very conservative economic policy. You might remembering him chastising uh, John Howard at, his, at, at Kevin's campaign launch for his reckless spending. He had very conservative foreign and defence policies, so people saw him as a safe pair of hands. I've often said that the Labor Party is not the natural party of government at the federal level, and the record shows that we win, or are most likely to win when they are tired of the other mob. And we don't look too scary. Now, at the last election, it's, it's as if we just focused on making ourselves look as scary uh, as is possible. But, you know, to answer your question, it has been done in the past. It, it is getting more difficult uh, because the electorate is getting more exercised about some of the, what I might describe, some more progressive issues. Um, but that doesn't mean we give up. So, you know, we can't win government without picking up the requisite number of working class and, you know, regional seats. And if we're not in government, if we're perpetually in opposition, 
uh, that none of the things we stand for, none of the policies we developed uh, are worth anything at all because they're no good if they if they remain in the top drawer after each election. Well, anyone with a memory would re- recall what you said about Kevin Rudd, that what, what he came to the election with was a, a very um, a, a attractive proposition. But in government, he found it very hard to um, sustain that, that popular image. What do you think happened in government with Kevin Rudd? And are the lessons there for... I think... Go on. I believe, I believe Kevin was, was in a hurry, um, as Labor governments tend to be, because we have these long spells in opposition. Obviously, Whitlam uh, is the best example uh, of that. Hawke was far, uh, st- far more steady on his feet, and I think he'd, he'd learned from the Whitlam and that a year as ACTU president. So Kevin, understandably, uh, was a reformist. And he was a policy thinker, was in a hurry, and I think he just moved too quickly. The, the Australian electorate is a very conservative one and we are resistant to change and too much change too quickly um, is a, a problem politically. If Julia Gillard had not backed away from her promise of no carbon tax, do you think she would have um, survived even her, her own party's threat? That's difficult to say because uh, Julia came to the leadership uh, obviously, in controversial and, and difficult circumstances, uh, and that was that, that was always going to make it hard for her to win the hearts and minds of an overwhelming majority of the Australian the Australian people. Uh, the great shame there, of course, is that the carbon architecture she put in place was a, a reasonable one. It was very very heavy in comp- on compensation, and that's that's the subject of a another story, and if it were still in place, or in other words, hadn't been refilled by Tony Abbott, uh, carbon would be trading probably at seven or eight bucks a ton today. Uh, the compensation would be still in place. Uh, industry would be still operating at the same level as it is today. The economy would be in the same shape, and people wouldn't even know, like the GST. Mm. They, they wouldn't even think about it being there anymore. But uh, that's history now, but sadly climate change has been a focal point of public discourse uh, and sadly even further there are too many both on the left and the right that don't want it to cease being uh, a metaphor uh, political competition and that's a shame because we will only get meaningful action on climate change when there's a level of bipartisanship. We need people with the strength of leadership on both sides of the political divide uh, to, to make a commitment to ending the climate wars, the carbon wars, and getting a settlement on this issue. Now, obviously, um, going public as you, as you have, it raises the question, um, are you saying that Anthony Albanese at the moment is not really coming up with the leadership offering that's going to win uh, Labor voters um, back over to the party, away from One Nation, and, and hopefully to give you guys a government? I'll preface my remarks by answer by pointing out that COVID has made opposition difficult for any opposition leader. So Albanese finds himself working within the most difficult uh, of times. Uh, but do I believe that his messaging has changed sufficiently uh, from the messages we took to the last election? The answer is no. Uh, he has done some things. He's 
he's dispensed with that ridiculous 45% reduction target by 2030. It was inexplicable. It was undoable. Uh, and it would have cost the economy. He's reaffirmed his commitment to the coal industry. Um, he's reaffirmed or made a commitment to the gas sector, getting more desperately needed gas out of the ground. So uh, in policy terms, he's, he's done some good things, but they really should have only been a re- reaffirmation of what the Labor Party always stood for or should have stood for. But the language is still hesitant, you know, rather than say, we support gas, it tends to be, we're not against gas. And the punters pick up on that nuance and they don't like it. Are you putting yourself forward as an alternative to Anthony Albanese? No, I'm not because I I believe there is still life in Anthony Albanese's uh, leadership. But obviously I believe he, he needs to change his trajectory. He needs to be more clear and loud in his support for blue collar uh, and high vis workforce, not just them, of course, also low paid workers in the aged care and childcare sectors, the services sector uh, more generally. We need to get back to our base. I've often said I'm about putting Labor back into the Labor Party and if Anthony Albanese can find a way of doing so clearly and without hesitation or ambiguity, then you know, you're still a chance of both leading us to the next election and winning that election. I think it was Philip Curry said, you, you might have to correct my fractions here, but it was a, a third that of uh, Labor members support what you're, you're doing, a third supports you but won't say that, and a third hate your guts. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> I hope my fractions were right. Um, is that the way you see it, too? Yes, I do. I thought that was quite clever of Phil. I thought he, he, he called it. Uh, quite quite perfectly. Mm. I put it a, a little differently. Uh, I would say a, a third, a, one third support me, what I stand for and how I'm going about trying to give effect to change. Uh, another third support my policy approach and my views on where the party has to, hand, to, to, lead, to, to head, but don't like the way I go about it. Mm. Uh, you know, the disruption, if you like, the public commentary. Mm. Um, and the third, of course, yeah, just hate me and are diametrically opposed to my policy positions. On the second point, by the way, I, I don't like um, having to, you know, publicly contest uh, what others are saying within my party. But better, we don't have a, a minute to lose here, mm. uh, and change has to come decisively and quickly. And doing it quietly behind closed doors just isn't going to cut it, I'm sorry. And I've been a member of this party for 36 years. I love this party. Uh, I support what it stands for. I know there are millions millions of people who are relying upon us to form a Labor government from time to time. And everything I do uh, is in that name. Uh, The good of my party, uh, making it competitive and delivering a Labor government. So let's imagine if um, uh, Anthony is not prepared to change his current position. Do you see you being forced to make a move to try and get an alternative leader? And then secondly, how easy is it to do that nowadays in the Labor Party? Peter, uh, very recently, Anthony Albanese visited Tomagal Aluminium Plant uh, in the Hunter Valley, uh, shook the hands of workers, um, spoke with them, including the union delegates, uh, built on his appreciation of the amount of 
the energy they consume or need to consume and where that comes from. So I've no doubt that he's reflecting deeply on these issues and each and every time he goes to one of these regions, I think that will be reinforced uh, in his mind. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that he'll come to the view that he needs to do more, say more and, and speak more decisively and loudly. Mm. Well, you know, Albo is a South Sydney supporter, so I'm sure when he's, he's seen you in recent times, he would have given it to you precisely what he was thinking. Have you two had a bit of a, a chin wag since you've gone public? Well, we've had many. Uh, some of them quite robust in nature, but... Yes, uh, we heard about but, that. But, but some of them are still are very, very friendly. Mm. You know, we've recently had some chats about footy and tennis and uh, other matters uh, and our mutual loves in life. Uh, look, I'd like to think... I haven't spoken with Albo since my resignation press conference, but uh, we've been mates for a long time. And uh, going back to about 1985, uh, during the young Labor days for both of us, and uh, I'm still hopeful that our, our mateship will remain intact. Is there an overseas country which we should be benchmarking off when it comes to our climate and renewables policy? No, I think we just simply need to do our bit as a member of the international community. And as a contributor of about 1.3% uh, of global emissions, um, we need to keep our action within proportion. Uh, you know, per capita, uh, greenhouse gas emissions since 1990 in Australia have reduced by 40%. Um, carbon intensity has reduced by, I think, 63 or 64%. It's not as if we haven't been making gains, Peter, and you know, the private sector isn't waiting for the parliament to act. It's it's tired of that and the games we play long ago. They are moving, and it's not just the electricity generation sector as important that it, as it is. It's the transport sector, the agriculture sector, you know, what local government's doing with its waste facilities. In aggregate, all of that really matters. But we seem to have this crazy obsession we're talking about electricity generation where transition is happening anyway, as you know, Peter, we have one of the highest take-ups of renewable energy in the world. And we know our coal-fired generators will come to the end of their physical and economic lives, just as Liddell in the Hunter Valley is about to do. And when they do, they won't be replaced. But we can, we can only get more renewable energy into the sector if we have more firming power, and that's where gas becomes so important. Yeah, because the, the, the central argument by, or from those who think that the desire to switch to renewables um, is, is you know, well, well, the goal is too, far too fast. And they say that, well, we just can't support the base load. What is, what is the base load real story? Because that ultimately that must be an important part of your argument that we just can't get our base load requirements from renewables you know, in the, the, the current situation and probably over the next decade. That's right, Peter. Many say that uh, in recent years, investment in the renewable sector has flatlined, fallen away. Uh, they say that's because there's no policy certainty in Canberra. Uh, that is rubbish. Um, as I said, the private sector has long given up on Canberra to make you know, to show any political leadership. Um, they can't invest more in renewables because we have so much of it in the system now. 
we can't put more in without further stabilising the grid. Now, there's only two ways you can do that. You can completely rebuild the, the grid if you've got a lazy, you know, I don't know, $50 billion maybe, probably more. Or you can, as coal withdraws, um, allow room for more renewables by putting more gas burning uh, or more battery storage capacity in. But, of course, battery technology is still uh, a little underdone. Or, of course, you could also firm with uh, hydro uh, energy. Um, but let's not, you know, play these silly games. Those on the left want to pretend the challenge is greater than it is uh, and the threat is greater than it is. And, of course, those on the right want to continue to run an economic scare campaign. Every Johnny in the street knows that producing electrons from solar panels and wind turbines is becoming cheaper and cheaper, and some of the traditional generation capabilities won't be able to compete. So it's happening, and our workers know it's happening. What they don't like are those people who have an obsession with accelerating the transition and accelerating it so quickly that inevitably it's going to cost them their job far more quickly than it should have. Yeah, it's funny when you, you brought up the fact that the, the left seems to exaggerate the threat and the right exaggerates the, the economic uh, th- threat of it all. Have you, have you been able to work out what the, the real assessment should be? Because it seems to me that if we fall in totally behind the left and say, yeah, you're right, let's get rid of all you know, coal-generating uh, power stations, well, well then we, we really are gambling on the, on, the, on the magnitude of the threat. But say, for example, within five or ten years' time, battery technology becomes so good that we, don't, we didn't really need to, to kill off everything as quickly as we did. Well, then it would seem like we've, we've gone too far to the left, but... Have you, have you tried to work out what is the, the rational in-between argument, Joel? Yeah, yes, of course. Uh, the, the rational in-between argument is to focus on technology, uh, helping industry leverage their investments uh, into those new technologies as they, they come along. I mean, every car and truck on the road uh, has a pollution system now. It didn't have, you know, I don't know, 10 years or, or more ago. Councils capture their methane now from their their, their waste facilities. Our, our our manufacturers have invested heavily uh, in efficiencies, not so much because of carbon output as impar- as important as that is, but because it saves them a lot of money, as you know better than me. So, so industry is moving, and of course, the path to the to two thousand and fifty net zero emission, uh, which I support, uh, will not be linear. You don't have to be halfway in your reduction of emissions uh, at the halfway point because there'll be, there will be technology you and I aren't even familiar with yet which will come along in 10 years' time or 15 years' time which will dramatically uh, reduce the rate of effort. So we need to be patient. Uh, we need to be... Uh, we need more political leadership uh, but we, we need to be not so dogmatic uh, about our approach. Uh, I mean, China's, you know, the big emitters you know, because of the rapid development and increasing in their output um, as we speak. So there's not much point us doing so much uh, so as it leads to job losses, when as the big polluters are still increasing, uh, you know, it won't really make any, any difference. We need to do enough to give us the credibility to preach to others on the world stage 
when they are not doing enough. And I don't think we need to do any more than that. Okay, so let's imagine um, there is no perceivable change in the narrative coming out of the Labor Party to the voters that you want to win back or you want to keep inside the fold. Do you imagine that there are enough people within the Labor Party to um, threaten uh, Anthony Albanese's position as leader before the next election? To answer that comprehensively, Peter, uh, would be the equivalent of me running up the white flag. Mm. Uh, I don't accept it's time to do that. Uh, I'm just a humble backbencher now, but I'm one with a pretty loud voice, I like to think, and one without political influence uh, within the party. And my job now is to do all I can, or continue to do all I can, to make this party electable. And I won't achieve that objective uh, without further progressing what I call a project. And, of course, that project is putting Labor back into the Labor Party. Mm. It sounds like you're becoming like a rational Wilson Tucky. Well, you you, you may be suggesting that I, <laughs> at some point I was something less than, than rational. <laughs> Uh, and I, and I, I reject that, absolutely. Yeah, I know. But as you recall, he was quite an outspoken back backbencher in his time. Um, and sometimes he got his way, didn't he? Uh, it made sense. Uh, like, of all, I mean, Wilson, I like. He, he, he was a bit of a crazy guy. Mm. But gee, when he spoke, people listened. Uh, and like so many of uh, who embrace his model, uh, you know, he's often discredited himself by overreaching. But he, he, he made a lot of sense most of the time. And he knew his subject matter, Peter. That is critically important to you. If you want to get in a debate with me about energy policy, know your stuff. Because I swallow every report, uh, study every paper, and I know it well and I've been doing it uh, for a long time. But more particularly, Peter, I know how people in the blue collar and the high beers think and speak and I know what are their aspirations or their expectations of government. And chief amongst that, uh, of course, is that economic security, uh, their capacity to keep a job, pay their mortgage and provide for their kids. You know, coal miners themselves are uh, in a transition. Most of them don't really want their kids to be a coal miner. They'd rather them go off to be uh, you know, a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever it might be their, might be their preference. And they want, they want another 20 or so years in the industry, which would allow them the capacity to keep funding uh, the welfare or the interests of their children. And what they don't want is someone coming along, riding into town and saying, no, in the interest of the planet, uh, we're going to shut that project down. Joe Fiskiven, thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. A great pleasure, Peter. Well, it's ad time and with interest rates on a downward slope, Australian investors may be forced to reconsider their investment strategy and find other income earning opportunities. Join us at the 2020 Switzer Income Conference, where some of the smartest finance minds in the country will show you how you can maximise your income investments while keeping the risk as low as possible. 
Held virtually via Zoom and hosted by myself and Paul Rickard, the conference will include both leading local and global managers. The day will consist of presentations and panel Q&A sessions focusing on investing at home and abroad. Across these interactive panels, the presenters will tell us how they invest for income, the risk-reward trade-off when investing for income, their view on the current markets, opportunities for income at both home and abroad, Broad and the future trends they see shaping income investing. The audience will also have an opportunity to ask questions via Zoom to get a deeper understanding of how these experts are investing. We hope you can join us on Tuesday the 24th and Wednesday the 25th of November. Tickets are limited, so be sure to book your seat before they run out at switzerevents.com.au. Well, it's been a crazy year for just about everything in business and one business that's right in the heart of hopefully taking away the craziness is Johnson & Johnson. I'm talking to Susan Martin, who's the Managing Director of Johnson & Johnson Medical. Sue, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Sue, it has been a crazy year, as I said in my intro for most of us, but especially those within the, the medical industries. What have been the biggest challenges for you this year? Look, I think in a global pandemic, working in healthcare gives you very much a bird's eye view, uh, Peter, of, of what's happening. And I think from a challenge perspective, first and foremost, was um, really understanding our, our business continuity, how we were going to get medical supplies into hospitals, especially as uh, borders started to close, um, um, you know, transport hubs were, were reduced. And so making sure that we could continue to support hospitals for emergency surgeries that did continue through uh, through the pandemic. I think it was also then working as a broader industry and for all the things that are critical during that time, things you would have heard of such as ventilators, PPE and mm. testing kits. And, and whilst Johnson & Johnson does not make those products in itself, uh, we were partnering with um um, well, our industry partners and, and providing support, providing leadership, providing connections um, to help facilitate that. And unfortunately, we didn't need all of those things um, due to um, how we responded to COVID. But um, it was good to know that as a, as a nation, we were prepared to go. Do you think um, there might be a mask division in Johnson & Johnson going forward forever <laughs> well, and ever? <laughs> it would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, look, you know, it, it's one of those things as we look at our, our business, um, we've been pretty clear on the areas that we focus on, Peter, and that, that's high-end medical technology and, mm. and pretty clear on the areas that we don't. Well, what is the, the most used, what is the most, I guess, um, successful division of of um, Johnson Johnson Medical. Well, I've got to be careful here what I say here because we've got a couple of successful divisions and mm. one that uh, you're probably most familiar with. Number one is orthopedics. We are one of the largest uh, orthopedic suppliers globally, and so that's your hips and knees. We're the largest trauma supplier in Australia uh, for your fractures and accidents and, and so on and so forth. We're also um, extremely large and one of the global leaders in general surgery and that encompasses everything from thoracics, uh, uh, colorectal, bariatric surgery, uh, quite a broad range. Um, vision um, is another area that we play in in terms of cataract surgery um, and also in regards to heart irregularities 
is um, you know probably the, the fourth area where we are big players. Mm. Because it's interesting, I'd say the people listening to this program now link you to two very important things in life: band aids. And baby powder, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the way why we were we were linked to Johnson Johnson as as children. I'm still using band aids because I'm I'm an excellent prone person whenever I'm doing anything in the garden or whatever. But I, I guess you know the fact that Johnson Johnson's in all these areas it makes total sense. But I guess you don't always operate under the Johnson Johnson brand with some of the products that are out there that we possibly know. Look, you're spot on, Peter. And um, as we say, we really work from the cradle to the grave mm. all the way through um, through someone's life. And uh, we have what we call our Johnson & Johnson brand, which is really our trust mark, all of those, you know, those things that you mentioned. But within medical devices, we're actually a compilation of acquisitions, mm. um, businesses that we have bought. And... Um, um, for example, um, within orthopedics, we are known by the surgeons, by the hospitals, as Depew Synthes. Mm. Um, we acquired Depew, um, globally this is, and then we acquired Synthes. Um, for our general surgery business, this is um, probably the heartbeat of Johnson & Johnson, and this is how it all started. That's called Epicon, as an example. So you're exactly right. Um, uh, those names that I just referenced are probably ones that, our surgeons and our hospitals are more familiar. Mm. So your division, does it have any role in the uh, efforts by Johnson Johnson to come up with um, either a treatment or a vaccine for coronavirus? Mm. So we work alongside our pharmaceutical division. Our pharmaceutical division is called the Anson, um, and uh, we're basically brother and sister, if I can put it like that, mm. under the Johnson & Johnson umbrella. Um, and obviously there's a, a lot of press um, about upcoming vaccines. There are several companies working on this and uh, Johnson Johnson is, is one of those. Um, and we're, we're all cautiously optimistic uh, that 2021 will be a, a good year for multiple vaccines. Mm. Um, clearly will be the requirement for a global population. Yeah. Tell me this because, you know, you understand this better than I do and people listening, uh, uh, we've all, it's funny how the coronavirus has made us all experts on things that we were never experts on. Like we're all experts on immunology and, yeah, yeah and we used to look, we started looking at these charts about, you know, I immunology and herd uh, immunity and all these sort of terms. And I think a lot of people are interested when they hear, okay, um, one of your rivals, Pfizer's, you know, come out with a, a pretty good-sounding vaccine. But lots of experts said, yes, but others will come along at maybe not necessarily at the exact same time, but it won't be that long after. Is that your feeling as well, that we will actually see, given what we've seen this week, that maybe by the end of this year a number of companies will be nailing their colours to the mast and therefore sometime... Hopefully, in the first half of next year, lots of people will be will be jabbed. I, 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 it's, it's the most pleasant thought I've got is that the world gets jabbed as quick as possible, so I can go flying to Europe and America in June or July. Well, Peter, similar to, to you, I'm also not an expert on immunology, and um, um, as, as I mentioned, whilst our pharmaceutical um, 
is a brother to my business and, and not certainly the one that I, that, that I lead. But to answer your question more broadly, uh, we will need multiple vaccines. Um, there are a number of companies, as you would be well aware, over 10 or 12, I think, that are, that are in this space. Um, and it will be important when you think of a global population, when you think of the pure logistics um, to enable um, this to get to, first and foremost, um, healthcare workers, a vulnerable population, but then a broader population is going to be a significant. Right. So, but, uh, you know, I, I've asked you to take a, a big risk and tell me whether you think by the middle of next year we will be flying and say uh, yes, Susan. Yeah, look, i tell you what I will say, Peter. I'm not sure whether we'll be flying, um, but I'm, I'm optimistic that by the middle of next year, you know, we will be in, in progress. But, you know, so many things have to happen yep. uh, to get to that point. Okay. What has the company learned as a, an expi- uh, a as a consequence of this experience? Clearly, your risk management officer has been sacked, <laughs> like every other risk management officer in the whole world who didn't see pa- a pandemic coming. But what what is what have you as a as a leader in your in your business, and what do you think the business has learned from this whole shocking experience? Well, what I've certainly learned is that things that were taking us months, we managed to do in some instances days. Mm. Um, so shortening the decision making was was key, and um, you know I'm, I'm I'm confident that that will remain part of our business moving moving forward. Um, I think there were a number of things that we were already working on, but this gave us a burning platform. So how could we digitise our business even more than what it is today? How could we interact with our customers in a different way? And uh, our customers also then had the burning platform to transform into this new way of working. And, uh, you know, a classic example of that is telehealth. A great example where I'm sure some of your listeners were meeting with their GPs over their iPhones. Mm. Uh, that was not happening pre-pandemic. Um, when I look at my business, there are a number of our team that are in surgeries every day supporting the case. Some of that was done over an iPhone so that those procedures could continue. They're just a couple of examples of where we've been able to transform our business but in a, in a rapid pace in time. Okay. Uh, showing you that I am actually a, an economist, I think, as I think through this, on the, f- the first experience of thinking about telehealth, thinking, oh, well, there might be you know, less demand for actual doctors, um, GP, surgeries. But then I thought, well, hang on, there's a whole bunch of people out there who are really useless when it comes to their health. They're called men, which I'm sure you, you've, you've come across a couple of them in your life. <laughs> and and often it's being too busy. Often it's being just you know slack. But the fact that you could you could access a doctor on your your phone may well escalate the number of people who actually get things seen to, which actually could not only increase health coverage, but even be good for your business bottom line. Because when you go to a doctor, invariably they'll make a recommendation that ends up being either a pharmaceutical or a device or whatever. So have you thought through that that possibility that maybe telehealth will actually generate more business rather than decrease business? 
Well, no, I absolutely believe it can generate business on the, the, the J&J front. I think um, before we even get to that um, um that point though, Peter, I think that, you know, as we've gone through this pandemic, what we have seen though is, is people not doing their general screenings. What we do know is mammog breast mammogram screening is down, prostate cancer screening is down. And so if there is one thing that I could impart upon your listeners is please, your health can't wait. Um, and that, you know, please go get your screening done. And whilst that is not done via telehealth, that needs to be done face-to-face. Um, it's just in regards to maintaining your general health and well-being. And, of course, whilst that does have a flow and effect to healthcare companies, it's for all the right reasons. Oh, you're such a wonderful person, Sue. Johnson Johnson has employed a wonderful person. Okay, let's go to something that you are also you know, involved in. And this is the first ever, is it Jumping for Literacy, a Guinness World Record attempt? Tell us about this. Well, Peter, you might be surprised to know, and I certainly was, that, um, you know, it's still one in five children in Australia go to school underprepared, and that's even more in disadvantaged communities. Mm. What we do know is that um, that then leads into, you know, drop out later on and so on and so forth. And and so this is a a group of, of companies that have come together partnering with United Way and United Way have have partnered with the uh, the Dolly Parton uh, Imagination Library, mm. which gives millions of books to children um, between the ages of when they're born to five when they go to school. And this program is operational um, right here in Australia. It actually started in North Ryde, which is where our head office is in Sydney. Mm. Um, and uh, because of this year, we've gone to this virtual event of a jump. That's it, Peter. Take mm. a jump, put it on Facebook, and uh, we're raising money so that more families can access this program. More children can get books, which we know is a fundamental stepping stone for school readiness. And so the the consequence of this, you know, because obviously some people listening to this would want to get involved, what do you imagine to be the actual process from, you know, getting all these people you know, on on board and interested in doing this and maybe contributing, obviously, money. How, how does that then eventually result in a, a young child accessing something that will be the, the, the runway to a, a much better start to school? So, so what happens is the money that we're raised is, um, is, is managed by United Way Australia, um, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. Mm. There is already a program in place, as I mentioned, which started in, in, in North Ryde. Um, and there's about oh, 250 to 300 families uh, that are part of that um, already. And uh, we would love to double that, triple that, quadruple that and take this uh, broad, more broadly across Australia. Mm. Um, under the watch of United Way, who put a very um, robust program around it. Mm. Um, And and that's the exciting thing. These kids are getting to, by the time they get to school, um, a a lot of them are far more prepared than what they would have been previously. Yes, great cause. One last question before you go. What is the medical device that you sell more of in this country? Oh, uh, look, I would say the medical device that we sell the most of um, in our business is something that's used in nearly every single surgery. So any of your listeners who's had surgery would have had 
sutures. Mm. And what does that mean? Your sutures is, is what pulls you back together after your knee operation, your heart operation. Yep. Uh, that's what pulls you back together. That's what makes sure that um, infection doesn't get into the operation site. Um, and that's what makes sure you've got an, a nice look um, cosmetically as well um, where your stitches are. Okay. And that's the reason why we would love Johnson & Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Sue Martin, thanks for joining us in the program. Great. Thanks, Peter. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. I look forward to catching up with you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time!